live. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Strong Tea. I'm Vicky. And I'm Katie. And if you haven't joined us before, Strong Tea is all about exploring topics that we should be learning and discussing more. Some of these topics are considered taboo, some controversial, but we're here to provide guests who deliver their inspiring stories and journeys in order for us to learn more um, and to get that discussion going. And today is no exception. We have an amazing guest with us today who Katie will give a proper introduction to shortly. But as this is strong tea, it would be What's the word? I was going to say remiss. Is that the word? It would be rude. rude. (laughs) It would be rude not to ask what we're drinking. So, Thomas, our guest, what are you drinking? I am drinking Earl Grey. It truly is the king of teas. I don't know why you would drink anything else. Classy. Tell us the story. You you did give us a wonderful story about Earl Grey before we, we went live. Yeah, so I thought it'd be interesting to look up a fun fact, and I don't know if I've uh, assimilated the entire fact correctly, but essentially <laughs> I believe that Earl Grey was saved. He was saved by a Chinese Mandarin gentleman from drowning and um, was given tea as a thank you, effectively. So that was kind of, uh, that was how this came about, I guess. Wow. Good I don't you. know if he saved the guy. Did he oh. save this Chinese guy? Or did the Chinese guy save him? Oh. And if he saved the Chinese guy, why did he give the tea? Like, because yeah. that was a Chinese thing at the time, right? So why did Yeah. So, so I'm assuming the Chinese guy saved him and yeah. he then ceremonially gave him some tea, thus. I do think tea, tea giving is a great gift. However, <laughs> to save someone's life, would you probably go a bit further? Maybe give them like, I don't know, old times, like a tankard? Rather than just some... definitely something more than that, <laughs> yeah. Lodg- lodgings and stuff. I mean, oh, whatever, yeah. okay, they, enough, whatever yeah. they need, I would say. You know, practically, if you're an earl, you're yeah. like, by the way, I've got this uh, barn conversion. That's all right. <laughs> if you haven't got anywhere, happy for you to move in. You seem right. like a good guy. Yeah, I don't think you'd be in a fit state to drink tea either. If you just nearly drowned, the last thing you want to do is, oh, a nice cup of tea now. Exactly. <laughs> Drown my lungs. Nice. nice. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Katie? Um, I have gone for a loose leaf tea, bird and blend, classic, strawberry and Nutella pancakes. Mm-mm-mm. Everyone's wow. favourite chocolatey pancake topping is back. Sri Lankan black tea, cocoa nibs, cocoa shells and freeze dried strawberries. Oh my god, it smells so good. Mm, nice, mm. nice. Yeah. yeah. You've gone you... chocolatey, I've gone fruity. Oh. I go have on. got I know. That's a little shoulder wiggle there. Um that's the best you're gonna get. Okay. So shimmy, I've shimmy. gone for sorry? Yeah, shimmy, 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 yeah. shimmy. Shimmy, 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 shimmy. Uh <laughs> strawberry lemonade. Oh. Bird and blend. Yes. And that has apple pieces, hibiscus, elderberries, rose hip, strawberry pieces, sunflower petals. Oh yeah. Wow. Never would have imagined. Oh, Donna tea. I it's feel like a bit of a chav yeah. now. Like, like trying, to, trying to be yeah. above my station drinking Earl Grey. Yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, don't want to deny <laughs> my roots. So uh, why not? Bit of a chav drinking Earl Grey. I love yeah. it. <laughs> trying to raise, a, raise above my station <laughs> in today's social economic Dick climate. with the Yorkshire tea. Yeah, stay in your lane, Thomas. <laughs> exactly. Do you like a builder's tea? Back in your box. I love a proper builder's tea, yeah. And which which builder's tea do you prefer? Oh, that's a good question. 
there's a right answer to this there probably is a right answer to this but you know off the back of the uh, the abuse of many chimpanzees over time i think it's probably pg just look good old-fashioned solids pyramid pg tips and that concludes today's episode (laughs) (laughs) we've gone full circle i just can't do it can't break out of that that societally driven box (laughs) i'm just gonna start your intro with ill-informed uh, yeah. Now plant-based <laughs> eco-warrior Thomas advocates use of chimpanzees for marketing of terrible, terrible yeah. feedback. We've cut his podcast short to 30 seconds. <laughs> Just no reference. If anyone asks you again, the right answer is Yorkshire tea. Yorkshire gold tea. Oh, sorry, Yorkshire gold. But other Yorkshires are available, like the toast and jam. Yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. multi biscuit. You know, we we can't leave out the other. Anyway, we digress. How do we get here? Right, let's let's dive in before we spend the entire episode talking about what the best tea is, which is Yorkshire slash Burn and Blend. Um, but I'm let's not qualified dive. for that. No. I'm not qualified for a lot of what I do, but frankly, <laughs> this is not a, a conversation I'm qualified for. We'll so dive into the we, stuff. We that move you are. on. Let's yeah. move on to the good stuff. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to start with ill-informed, poor tea drinking uh, guest for today. Um, no, I'm not. Um, we're super, super lucky to have the incredible Thomas Duncan Bell with us today. And if any of you have heard that name before, you might be familiar with his, I don't know, would you, would you call it your pseudonym of the bipolar businessman? Um, I'm going to read... Yeah this intro that i found about you already i've just stolen it i'm not gonna make any any lies about it i've Leave stolen it right and my my I, my lifestyle is all about efficiency of administration oh, yeah right? work, so work smarter it. not harder smarter not yeah, harder okay and i just think it's such a good intro because it just says it all so a true enigma living with bipolar disorder thomas has managed to reach over one million people with his writing video and various other media work and published articles on mental health and business Growing up in an extremely volatile environment, his father, who's a destructive, repressed homosexual, Thomas fought adversity and fear since he was old enough to remember it and is now swiftly becoming one of the UK's most popular mental health speakers. Thomas also battled through drug and alcohol addictions, destructive relationships and evolved to become a prominent mental health campaigner. He's now the primary mental health champion at the UK's Institute of Directors and is performing his energetic keynote speeches and roundtable discovery sessions at all the diversity events across the UK. Someone that commands your attention, I can absolutely guarantee that's the case because I have seen you speak and I was absolutely enthralled right from the start. Um, Thomas was thrown out of top theatre school because of his debilitating mental health despite obvious raw talent for the stage. He's been a FTSE 500 and... SME commercial consultant for over 14 years and has run sales teams across the UK, Europe and across the US. He's able to work with companies to develop mental health programs and understands the needs of business and mental health. Also, currently writing a book to add another, another string to the bow called Everything's a Little Bit Mental um, and is currently talking to publishers about that as we speak. So I don't want to steal any more of that thunder. I saw you speak about four years ago at a mental health conference in Cardiff. And then I accosted you at the buffet station. <laughs> That's the only way I can describe it. Most action I've had in ages. <laughs> um, and, and had to waffle on at you for, for a good half an hour. So thanks for enduring that. Thanks for coming back for some more waffle. So, That's what it's all about. <laughs> without further ado, <laughs> tell us your story. 
So, yeah, so you met me doing a keynote speech. I guess whistle-stop tour of my journey generally. We'll delve into some along the way as well, I guess. Um, essentially, yeah, you mentioned you mentioned my father. So my, my mother and father were both gay. Um, so when I was growing up, the dynamic in the household was that my mum was kind of really quiet um, and kind of repressed in a way. She was a very kind of silent being. I don't remember a lot of, you know, her saying a lot of things. You know, I don't. Sometimes when you think about people in your life, your parents, when you're really young, you remember them saying certain things. And my mum, I just remember this kind of resounding silence in a way. Um, whereas on the polar opposite of that, ironically. It is like a bipolar conundrum, I guess. One, one's one way. My father was extremely volatile, aggressive. You know, he was a martial arts instructor, a manly man. He was knocking about with the Hells Angels. He was a biker. You know, we were, we were. You know, my earliest memory is of him smashing up my uh, older sister's room while she's cowering in bed on her futon because she hadn't done the washing up or something like that. Right. And I must've been three or four years old or something like this. So if you can imagine that's one circumstance in the midst of 14 years. So we, my mum and dad were together for 14 years. And my, I, I, when I was 12 years old, they separated effectively. My mum finally kind of had the courage to get us out of that scenario. Um, that's kind of where I came from. And, you know, now I'm a, you know, let's say i mean people say a mental health expert oh, i hate this stuff you know what i mean but i hate I hate this kind of self-promotion what am i am i an influencer am i an expert well, I, i'm just a bloke from a council estate who had a really rough time of it and has used himself as a test dummy over many years to understand what works for human beings and what doesn't and now my full focus is how can i stop people feeling as sad as i felt when i wanted to take my own life right this is the kind of this is the kind of real focus for me. So I guess ninety, you know, an in, interesting statistic that most people won't be aware of is that ninety seven percent of our inbuilt habits, our habitual reactions to things, and how we operate as individuals, around ninety five to ninety seven percent of that is developed in those formative years as children, from the age of zero to seven years old. Mm. So whatever happens to you during that period. All of the things that like how we react to stuff, whether it be being late for something or not getting working on time or kids, kids playing up, whatever it is, those habits have come from us as children. Right. And that's why often neurodivergent individuals, you know, sometimes get labeled as individuals who are kind of more flippant to react or something like that. we can be quite reactive to certain things. Triggers, let's say. I think anybody who's dealt with an extremity of mental health kind of has that. But essentially... I've now had to spend my life, you know, in, in the context of the story, coming back to the story, I've now had to spend my life kind of unpicking what that is without any major level of support or understanding from anyone in my sphere um, of family or anyone like that, right? And I think so. That's why I say I'm kind of like a test dummy, right? It wasn't until I was kind of 20, 21 years old that I was even diagnosed as being on the bipolar spectrum and that only came off the back of me trying to take my own life um and effectively having to go to a doctor and talk about suicidal ideation and the fact that i just 
didn't want to live anymore and this kind of stuff and being given medication and finding that that medication would shut my mind down by three o'clock in the afternoon. So when you're a sales guy and you can't string a sentence together, it's not conducive to making money. Right. And so in my early stage of, of being diagnosed with medication, I realized when this kind of 30 day period, I was like, I just, I have to just bin this, right? If this is a mental health issue that my doctors were suggesting had been governed over time, fundamentally starting because of an unsustainable process of youth development, let's say, right? I wasn't taught some of the tools and techniques and things that we should to make friends or to be part of what we would classify as polite society or you know, there was a lot of stuff that I missed out on, those social mechanics that happen in a happy, loving family where everything is going to play. Um, I didn't get that. So I thought, okay, if that's the problem, if it's something that's been developed on a mental level, then I'm an intelligent enough guy, I feel, internally, to be able to try and shift the balance. What can I try to kind of, the way I classify it is remap my mind. How can I reestablish parameters in my head that don't mask any of the stuff I've been through that's prevalent, is relevant, it's important to understand where you've been and where you're going, but to help me live more sustainably happy forever, right? More often than me cowering in bed, you know, feeling like I'm worthless. And so if I fast forward to kind of when I left home, before I was diagnosed or any of this, I left home at 18. Um, I, I was scouted for the Youth Olympics as a swimmer when I was with my mum and dad. My mum was always taking me to swimming. So from the age of four, I could swim. From the age of six, I was competing. And um, so it was like kind of like before school and after school training. And then on weekends, on Saturdays, I was competing. I had Sunday for myself kind of thing. That was about it, really. And my mum was pulling me in this direction. My dad was a martial arts instructor, so pulling me towards martial arts. So I grew up in that environment. And then when my parents split, I just had enough of everything. And so I just binned the swimming completely. Uh, Michael Phelps could have had you, buddy. Um, I'm, the, I'm the butterfly boy, right? But <laughs> I, I ne it never got to transpire, right? So when I was young, because I was quite successful as a swimmer, I went from club to club to club as I evolved my skill set. And what, what blew my gasket eventually was I'd moved through so many clubs. Every time you go into a club, someone will bully you because you're better than them. And I was the best everywhere I went, right? So that was, I'm not saying I had to blow my own trumpet, but I was a talented swimmer. I was doing a stroke butterfly that most people couldn't do very well. And for some reason, organically, because that time in the water was making me present, I was just real good and so i that was kind of like my meditation in a way i guess as a kid i didn't even know it at the time it's only i'm probably only establishing that in this conversation now right i've never said that before but the way i think about it is it's, it's that it was my kind of meditation it was my free time so i was i was evolved and i was my energy was engaged um but going from club to club kicking everyone's ass, getting bullied, slowly moving to the top of the food chain where everyone wants to be your friend, and then going to another club and another club. By the time my parents split, I just couldn't hack it anymore. I just didn't want to move to another club and go through that process again. You know, I'd taken too much kind of shit at home. I just didn't have any energy left for it. 
And so I just gave up and I was lost for a while. And while I was at school, I had this teacher um, and Miss Lawrence, her name was. Um, and I always remembered her and she was always significant from a visual perspective because she had she's had polio. And so she walked like this limp, really slight woman, kind of little librarian looking lady, but absolutely lovely individual. And she gave me a detention because I was pissing about in class. And this was after my parents had split up. And I said, listen, my mum's a teacher. She can't come and collect me after school because I'll be dead. You know what I mean? Like, we just had a divorce going on. She's got enough on her plate. She comes home from a hard, hard day of telling kids off. And then she comes to pick me up. So I was like, I'll do anything. Like, you name it, let's have it. And she said, if you be in this plate, um, I will let you out of this after school detention. And I said, <laughs> okay, well, you know, I'm not doing any of that arty-farty audition shit. I'm, I'm going to... <laughs> I'm going to just be in the play to get out of it. And she was like, okay, no worries. Anyway, she sent me to this room at a prescribed time and I went there and it was in fact an audition. So I was kind of already in the midst of like 30, 40 kids. And I'm like, oh crap, I have to, I have to just do something. I got this part in this play, obviously by default anyway, that was my first glimpse into uh, how, um, <laughs> I guess how, uh this kind of acting world and stuff is so superficial right you just know someone and you're in right <laughs> so on one level it was like that she was doing a beautiful thing she was trying to change a kid's life and so i'll always remember her for that and i didn't learn any of my lines in this play my nemesis at school was a guy called james morell perfect looking perfect family perfect <laughs> financial fiscal situation going everywhere in life getting all the lead roles um he learned all my lines. And there was one point in the play where I had to stand at the front and I had one big speech and I had to learn it. There was no hiding, right? And so I bumbled my way through the, this play every night, but every night I got up and I stood on the front of the stage and I delivered this speech. And I remember like seeing a newspaper article and stuff like that off the back of it. And it was like all they could talk about in this play it was like this kid who delivered this speech. And I thought, wow, Jesus, there's something in that. I like that feeling that I have right now. Um, and if you're an actor, you make loads of money, right? And we were so poor when I was a kid, really, that I didn't, I just thought money meant happiness. So I thought, right, I'll do this acting thing. And I auditioned for nine drama schools because posh people audition for one and they go and get in. Um, but I was like, we don't know how this works, right? So we treated it like university. <laughs> We're from a family who's never had any actors in it. So we, um, yeah, I auditioned for nine. I got into five. I got three scholarships for like 15 grand a year because we were a single parent family. So I had to audition for sort of special needs scholarships, let's say, where if you're too poor to attend, we'll give you a shot, young man, your little, your little waif and stray. <laughs> so I, I went and did these like poor man's auditions, but I smashed it out um, and got this place in drama school. And actually, I... I didn't know myself when I left home. I got kicked out of drama school in the first, like uh, after the first term of my second year because I'd been missing some classes. And I'd been missing some classes fundamentally because I was having extreme mental health related anxiety and migraines. I was taking 10 cocodamol tablets in the hospital and it still felt like someone was putting a drill in my head. I was having lumbar punctures and all sorts of stuff. And so I was missing classes that I thought were basically just bullshit, you know, like were a DOS, 
You know, I had one singing teacher who was dobbing me in all the time, which led to my demise at that school. She couldn't even play the songs I was taking her. So I was getting frustrated and bored with the lessons because I wanted to sing, you know, something from Phantom of the Opera, but she couldn't get through the score. So I just had to do breathing exercises and fundamentally it didn't mentally stimulate me enough to bother going, you know, but then she'd dob me in for missing class and that would reflect on my report and then eventually I was I was kicked out really without warning without any level of mental health support at all to be honest the drama school I went to was GSA Conservatoire which didn't used to be attached to a university campus now it's attached to the University of Surrey which has uh, an amazing well-being program in place and a centre for kids and stuff like that but we didn't have that before so GSA didn't really care they just wanted to deliver chorus type level actors and musical theater folks into West End shows and use that as a catalyst for generating revenue to keep this business running. Right. Which I didn't really know at the time, but I'm a businessman now. Right. So I know all about that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, so anyway, back to the story, I've got kicked out of drama school and I'm extremely sad and depressed. And I said to my mum, can I come home? And she said, no, you have to go and get a job. Um, and even if you hate this job, you just do it. You know, I've, I've mostly always hated my job. You know, that's part of life. You Like most people are in a job they don't like, but it brings home money and that's what we do in society and that's how it works. And I was like, no way. I don't <laughs> like that vibe. Um, so I went and got a job anyway. I got into telemarketing. Um, within six months, I was a top telemarketer in the UK. I was doing one face-to-face -face appointment for a, for a client to pitch their wares to someone um, every four dial outs. So that's, you know, making phone calls all day long, 150 calls all day long, for example. Every four times I picked up the phone, I was making an appointment, which was second to none because I was account managing properly and I was taking myself seriously uh, as an individual. I didn't consider myself a spotty teenager in a call center. I considered myself a director with a proposition calling the managing director of Cisco Systems, who I booked once, by the way, um, off a of cold call, right? <laughs> And like to pitch my wares. And I felt there was potential for a coffee and a conversation. It was about this relationship that I felt there was. And so I was really good at that role because I understood that actually sales isn't about me pitching you something. It's about a relationship. And so I got really good at sales. After another year, I decided to leave um, the business I was working at. And I set up my own business when I was 20. And circa 20 years later, here I am, um, kind of doing my thing and expanding into mental health. But there was a point, there was a time, there was a point in that story to bring us up to date in 2015 where I was making money from, you know, helping people sell their wares. I've worked for people like Rugby Football Union, England Rugby, Charles Tirrett, Hackett, Pepe Jeans Group, you know, loads of different types of brands, huge brands, Amex, BA. Um, helping people make money, right? I help companies make millions of pounds a year without spending any money through creative partnerships built off relationships and shared assets rather than us giving you 50 grand to do an email shop, for example, right? Stuff that means something. But I, I was kind of at this point in 2015 where I was in a networking group. I didn't have a lot of money at the time because I was getting bored of selling my services. I wasn't happy. And a mental health uh, charity called Oakleaf got up and they started speaking about the fact that only 19% of men will talk about having uh, a mental health issue. 
and only 2% of that 19 would actually put their name to it. And I looked around the room at the time, there must have been 40 or 50 individuals there, and I thought, well, actually, would any of these people be there um, if I was stood on that train track again? And ultimately, I decided that they wouldn't. And then I thought, well, are, so are any of these people going to spend any money with me? Probably not, not really. So all I cared about at the time was money and what people thought of me. Um, and I decided in that moment that that didn't matter anymore. Like I cared so much about what people thought of me that I wasn't making any money because I was doing stuff that was making me unhappy. So I thought, fuck it, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to talk about it. And I spoke at that session. I said, listen, I'm on the bipolar spectrum and I'm a guy who everybody knows. I'm doing eight networking meetings like a week at that time. I was meeting hundreds of people. And I was like, I don't, I don't care what anybody thinks of me because I haven't got any bloody money anyway at this point. So why does it matter? You know, it can't, it can't bring me down any further. It can only free me. And I decided I was going to start a blog called thebipolarbusinessman.com. And I didn't know what a blog was. I just went onto Google. I thought it was for repressed writers who couldn't get a book deal. And I looked up on Google, what is a blog? And I was like, oh, it's like a diary, isn't it, really? So you just kind of rant online. So I just decided I'd set up this blog. And I had a marketing database of 50,000 people. And I thought about them in the same context as that networking meeting. And I thought, if you don't want to hear from a guy who's just trying to talk about mental health, are you a good person? Ah, let's see what happens. I'll email everybody, right? So I emailed everybody this blog. It was before, before uh, GDPR. GDPR and all this, guys, right? So I was like, if anybody comes back and they're a dick, then surely that's just them being nasty about mental health. So I don't want them in my life. So I'll ignore that. Um, so I sent it out. And um, my mum called me like a week after I'd set up this blog. And she said, I've just gone to join your blog. And it says join 10,000 other people in reading the Bipolar Businessman blog. And at that point, I thought, wow, I've kind of, I'm speaking to people here. And I was getting people communicate with me where they were saying, listen, I finally know who I am, like, off the back of reading some of your stories. I, like, kind of know what's wrong with me. I'm going to go to my doctor. I'm going to talk about it. I don't know whether to go to a doctor or go and have a beer and commiserate myself, but I know where I stand finally because of something you've written. And a couple of vice presidents at Unilever picked up the blog they were on this mailing list, I guess. And um, they clicked through and they sent it to a guy called Jeff McDonald, who's like the godfather of mental health in the UK. So he's the ex-global vice president for Unilever who was looking after HR. He had 16,000 staff under him. And he ra ran, his, his friend jumped off a building in Canary Wharf and he was really affected by that, one of his best friends, the fact that he couldn't help his friend. And he took Unilever through a two-year two program, well-being program, that saw them as the third best place to work behind Apple and Google on LinkedIn, whereas previously they were like 200-odd. Like they weren't even on the spectrum. And he called me into Waterloo Station and said, let's have, a, uh, let's have a meeting. And he said to me, you think you're just kind of ranting about this stuff that you go through, but actually you're saving people's lives. And I hadn't really fully contemplated it in that context before. I knew I didn't want people to feel sad if telling my story could give people some kind of tool or if it could just make them feel like they're not alone or whatever, that was the erratic stage of thinking I was at at the time. I was just like, I just want to help people. And if I say something that can help them, then happy days. I didn't think about could it trigger people and all this kind of thing. I wasn't that educated in the mental health space at that point. But he said, I'm going to make you into a keynote speaker. And he took me into the Institute of Directors, which is where this, uh, I think this 
introduction you read was was from from back around 2015 2016 i think originally so took me into the institute of directors and i was on stage alongside him another guy called uh brian hayworth who was a global director at hsbc at the time and another lady called samantha brown who was uh from a company called herbert smith free hills big uh, law firm i had no business being on the stage for these these times of industry right it's like oh shit where where am i at and um, so I'm on the stage. There's like hundreds of these people around at the Institute of Directors and everyone's sitting down and slowly the directors recount their stories and their journey of mental health and what they're talking about. And it came to me and I was like, I, I've got so much adrenaline. I can't actually sit down. I have to just get up. And so this kind of amalgamation of Lee Evans and Dave Gorman and Russell Brands having a love child that's kind of what came of that moment and I just kind of jumped up I said listen guys my mum always said that it's really polite to look people in the eye when you have a first stage meeting and so I'm going to try and do that right now and I just moved my eyes rapidly around everybody as much as I could flick, flick it up and down like you might see in a Lee Evans set or something like this and people just started giggling and laughing and everything and this kind of silence was broken and it was like just kind of a cathartic moment for me where I thought, fuck, I've really found my place here, right? I trained as an actor. I know how to conduct myself on stage, but I'm doing something that really means something. And now I just get to organically tell my story and hopefully I'm going to save someone's life here today or change the way they think about themselves or how they live their life in general. And that's really powerful. Um, and kind of everything changed for me then. So now where I am today is... Primarily, I spend my time as a keynote speaker. I work with companies like BBC, uh, global PR companies like Weber Shandwick to, to help them to evolve people's perceptions of mental health in business. So open up and break down that stigma, which I think is a bit old hat, right? We've broken down the stigma. We should be talking about mental health. You're mental as a business if you're not doing it. And then I help them to evolve um, programs internally that will um, effectively help their employees change their lives for the better forever based in based on the context of the fact that a company can't fully change how it does well-being necessarily the individuals can change how a company does well-being and i feel my time and my energy is better served being funded by companies to talk to their employees about how they can change as individuals which in turn will change their life make them more productive as individuals show up for themselves and show up for the business. So organically, the companies that I work with get the end games, the fiscal and human return on investment that comes with people showing up for work and being their whole self, right? Bringing their whole self to work. And so I kind of been, I'm kind of in a space now where that is my primary focus. I've put to bed this 20 grand a month consultant mindset where it's I'm earning money, but I'm selling loads of shirts. And what does that mean? And I'm looking for sustainable ways to earn money, just filling my cup, doing things that, mean something real and that's my story today boom wow there is <laughs> there is so much to dive into there um and i yeah, i kind of want i kind of want to start anyone listening to this that doesn't really know what bipolar is go back to sort of you being 21 22 getting diagnosed yeah. can you tell us a little bit about what bipolar disorder is what the yeah. main characteristics are and you mentioned a couple of times there you said, I'm on the bipolar spectrum. Yeah. Now, a lot of people sort of reference, I'm on the spectrum or, you know, he's on the spectrum. Can you explain a little bit more about what that means and if there are sort of different 
extents of this? Yeah, so there's a wide range. Like when you, when you, if if you like focus on, so okay, the the simplest way to start, right? Um, what is bipolar disorder? Essentially, bipolar disorder is, uh, fr from a day-to-day -day perspective, is an issue whereby I might have a day where I feel these manic highs and this extreme burst of energy. I've, I've, I've capitalized on everything positive within myself and I feel like I can take on the world. I'm invincible. Everything is going right for me. If you look at then the paradox between that level of state versus the other side of the bipolar spectrum, which is the, the lows, the next day I might be in bed feeling like I'm worthless, like I'm ugly, like who cares what I've got to say? Who, who the hell am I? You know, it's this self, this negative self-belief, right? Putting yourself down and beating yourself up and telling yourself, why do you think you're worth this? You know, this is the kind of fundamentalist to what people see on the bipolar spectrum. And you look at people like Stephen Fry, for example, who's, a, a, you know, an extreme level of the bipolar spectrum where he's extremely manicized and extremely depressive lows. And that might keep someone in bed for weeks or months in the worst cases. For me, I'm not at that level of extremity I've, I've got what's called an emotionally unstable personality disorder and so the bipolar spectrum is a range of issues that stem not just necessary not just necessarily physiologically off the back of genetics but a lot by how your your formative years are governed which is what i talked about kind of in the intro there um and so you know if you imagine like walking into a bar when you're kind of 20 just being diagnosed you're like hi uh you look beautiful. Uh, I've uh, got an emotional unstable personality disorder. Uh, do you fancy a drink? Um, imagine, imagine, right? Trying to that was that, that winning opening line. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I think nowadays it probably is right because I think we've gone full circle now. So I think if if I was in the dating game now, it would be it would they'd be like, wow, how authentic. Let's get married immediately. Um, <laughs> But back then, it's like kind of when someone tells you you've got an emotionally unstable personality disorder, you're on the bipolar spectrum, you don't really know what it is, and it feels like someone at some point connected to you might wake up with a horse's head in their bed, you know what I mean, unbeknownst to you. You know, so I didn't, you know, how this kind of diagnosis came about was I didn't, I just felt inherently sad when I left home. I went through every emotion. My mother and father were also gay, as I mentioned, so I even went through that period where I was like, Am I just gay and I don't know? Like, maybe that's it. I don't. I just don't know why I'm so sad. Um, and there was no kind of way to understand what it was about. And so what I did was when I went through this diagnosis, they, they kind of, they ask you all these questions and there's like four hours of this stuff. And it's kind of like when you test kids for dyslexia and stuff like that. Um, and I'm dyslexic and dyspraxic. So I love a good, I love a good test to see <laughs> which box I fit in. But um, all the questions were the same. Right? I went into this room and like all the questions were like worded differently for me to answer them differently. And I was like, listen, guys, like my IQ is at a level here where I see what you're trying to do. You're trying to take me through this maze of stuff. Can we just talk in real time about like what I'm going through and what I face and this kind of thing? So we went through this process where I wasn't really open to necessarily how they wanted to diagnose me. I wanted to really cut through this tick box process and get to some real stuff. I've never had a counselor, I've never had a therapist, any of this stuff. So I just wanted to unpack what that was like. I think 
so so that is the the bipolar spectrum in a nutshell is those kind of polar opposites that is that extreme high that extreme low and and the length of time that's prevalent within you as an individual and there's a range of spectrum that you're on however when i was diagnosed at least i had a benchmark so mm-hmm. for me what i did take from that was i was like well i've been through this crap process to get here but now i have a benchmark for understanding some of the fundamentals as to what make me tick and then you can progress at that stage so you know i know one of the things you know we talked about that you wanted to know prior to this was about kind of what services are uh, there are and stuff like this in terms of kind of getting diagnosed i think it's prevalent to talk about that now really i think if you seek medical advice when you feel like you're in a depressed state or you have an extremity of mental ill health maybe like the doctors, the NHS, all, all this kind of stuff that you go through, maybe that isn't going to be the thing that heals you eventually, as it wasn't me. However, you will be, it's, it's okay to be put in a, bo- a box to start with, just so that you can gain some fundamental knowledge around what you face day to day. You know, you know, I've, I've, I've got PTSD from childhood trauma. I've got issues with ADHD as well. Um, which was later discovered by a therapist I was working with for a long time. So things change over time, right? And I think, so I've got this kind of list of, right, <laughs> I'm on the bipolar spectrum, I've got ADHD, I've got PTSD, I've got dyslexia, dyspraxia. How neurodivergent do you want to get? <laughs> Meanwhile, I've got an eating disorder um, and this kind of stuff, which blokes don't talk about as well. You know, so there's all these kind of things that I think, think challenge us as individuals but getting that fundamental diagnosis is core and i think you have to seek medical advice as a starting point to moving down that journey even if that journey isn't the one that's going to serve you for the long term i feel has to be internal you've been through a lot right i mean just the list of you know being bipolar in itself sounds challenging but add the extra neurodiverse elements on top and it's got to be one heck of a challenge and it's got to be difficult to weed out. Well, I'm behaving this way. So it's that part of me. Oh, I'm behaving that way. So maybe it's that part because there are so many labels going on. Mm. How have you coped with this? I mean, it's, it wasn't like, you know, that, that, that time that I was diagnosed and I took medication and this kind of thing to try and shift the balance medically and then binning them and then starting on this journey. It wasn't like, I solved all my problems day one, right? I went through this sex and drugs and rock and roll kind of lifestyle where I was clutching everything. I was sleeping with women and I wanted love so badly that I wanted wife, house, kids and everything like that. But we would have sex and then I would have to detach myself from that because if that went away, of its own volition, then I would be crushed, right? Because seemingly in my environment growing up where I should have been loved, I feel like, you know, and my my mum is amazing, right? I love my mum so much. She's my biggest fan. She likes all my shit on social media, like all this kind of stuff. Like she's she's watching everything I do and she loves everything I do. And I always worry about talking about my mum a little bit in some of these conversations because I worry that she might think that I think ill of her for some of the things we went through, but really I'm just kind of unpacking some of that stuff 
And it doesn't mean that I hold anything against her. She went through this period of trauma that I would not wish on any woman um, or any person. Um, and so I think that's part of the challenge of being an outspoken mental health person, right? Because I'm not just affecting, I'm trying to do something that means something for other people, but I'm not just affecting me. I'm sharing stories that are, that relate to maybe my sisters or my mom or people who are still alive who can feel emotionally affected by what I'm talking about or what I'm going through. And so I find that kind of tricky to navigate a little bit. Um, but I think, and now I digress completely from your question uh, because I start thinking about my mum and how much I love her. But I, I think that, you know, I didn't have the love. I felt like I was always going to lose love. I felt, I've always felt very alone, let's say. I've always felt like it was me on my own against the world. Even when I had family around me and even when I was with my sisters and stuff like that. You know, I was a twin and my twin died when we were born. And so I I think I just, you know, people talk about this twin connection. And I think I've always just felt that misbalance of energy in me. You know, thinking about it now and being, you know, a guy who's grown up and being an adult and have a son of my own. You think more about, okay, you should be living for two. And there's a pressure in that. Why did he die? Why didn't I die? Why isn't he here? Would it be, would I, would I be okay if he was here? Would we hate each other? You know what I mean? Or would that be that thing that kept me stable, that kept me robust? I don't know. Um, and I think, you know, you can see now, you can hear now, I guess, from a listener's perspective, that it's kind of choking me up some of these things. But I think, I don't delve into this stuff all the time. I think it's important to do these podcasts and stuff like that to really, you always try, kind of unpick something new. And maybe that means someone else connects to that. I went to, I went with a company called Strongmen um, on an excursion and Strongmen effectively was set up by two guys um, who had bereavements. And so they set up this charity to look after guys that suffer with bereavement at any level, whether it be you've lost your wife or your child or someone close to you, your parents, whatever it might be. And I went on this excursion with these guys and I met so many individuals, some of whom had lost kids. And, you know, even hearing something like, you know, I talk about in my speeches all the time, this is one thing that's prevalent. If you start trying to help people or you even just start listening to other people's stories, you can become more readily available to change and assimilate change in yourself through being inspired by individuals you would not have even thought of. The bricklayer who's lost their kid but still has three others and manages to get through the day, right, with extreme anxieties, like this kind of thing. You know, and so meeting these guys through strong men, actually, that helped me to progress on some of those feelings with my brother and that kind of that loss. And I even met a guy there who'd also lost his twin. And so while he looks nothing like me, we adopted each other as twins. And now we keep in touch and, you know, just you know, talk to each other every now and then and stuff like that. And it's kind of like we're not on each other's backs all the time, but it's just nice to feel like there's someone else out there gets you on that level or even if you 
like a comment they've made or a picture they've shared of them in their family life or they do the same for you you know that's just that's what social media was intended for is that touch base just to say i'm watching mate i'm here and i i know i know where you're at when you posted that you know so i think there are loads of initiatives i'm involved in now that try and help break through that um and make people more mentally resilient i think the challenge with being mentally resilient in our society is that everybody wants to program the process and make it quick easy and efficient whether it's technology or whatever it is and what i try and do with companies is help them understand how to be more human and to treat people more humanly so there are real physical connections and real exchanges of energy and care because that's vastly more sustainable you know we don't really talk about what led to my mental health issues we just talk about the problem mm. and how we deal with this problem or how we put a plaster on this problem subdue it but actually if you talk about well there was one time when my dad took a combat knife and told me that he was going to go out and kill someone and i was sat with my mum and sisters in this living room scared shitless of what might happen and off he went and the combat knife by the way might have made rambo flaccid and we didn't know whether he was ever going to come back or whether he was going to kill someone or whether he was going to be dead or whatever and i'm like five you know <laughs> it's like maybe we can start to unpack some of that anxiety mm. for certain things do you think i digress again oh, but sorry. it's a beautiful thing so please yeah sorry um no, i was just going to ask because you mentioned their uh ptsd and you also yeah. talked about adhd yeah um only know speaking from personal experience and conversations i've had with therapists in the past that adhd is something that can surface when trauma occurs is that something that happens with bipolar or is bipolar something which is actually you're born with because it's that's the thing with a lot of these neurodivergent things isn't it sometimes you are predisposed to it sometimes you're born to it and sometimes it's your environment so yeah. what, do you know much about whether so, yeah is- I've, I've had you know there's there's a there's a range of schools of thought on what mental health issues stem from genealogy versus you know lived experience habitual life etc um i was told that the degree of the bipolar spectrum i'm on the issues that I'm suffering with are prevalent off the back of the disjointed nature of my upbringing primarily. While there may be things like dyslexia or dyspraxia that might have been genetic, whatever it might be, the the, the issues with the extremities of mental health, ill health that I was suffering were primarily because of the fact that I hadn't managed to compound enough information about how to operate as a normal sustainable happy human being effectively which is something that should be governed by your parents and your schooling and your upbringing all these different factors that come into play so yeah that was kind of i guess that was i i don't i don't think you know i've i've seen a doctor do a documentary on psychopaths and he's like, I've mapped my brain against the brain of many psychopaths who have killed many people and like rapists, murderers, all these kind of people. And I have exactly the same map in my brain as these psychopaths. However, my father was good. We were a happy family. 
I got everything I needed. I was cherished. I was loved. I was given, you know, like constraints as well. It wasn't like it was just easy for him. He was still told off as a child or chastised or whatever, but he had a good upbringing and that was it. So he wasn't led towards that destructive nature that is organically within, you know, his body already. Mm. He was able to move beyond that and is now able to cultivate that understanding, right? There's, I talk about, you know, I've just been asked to write a book, uh, a leadership book, looking at new, like successful leaders who are neurodivergent, whether they've got autism, dys dyslexia, whatever it might be, bipolar disorder, you name it. Um, and, or whether they're on the autism spectrum, sorry, I shouldn't say they've got autism. So whether on the autistic spectrum, et cetera. And I think the thing that the biggest misconception is that we're just erratic, like people who are neurodivergent are just erratic or they're, they're you know, they're kind of, or, or reactive, you know? The, the the nastiest times I've had in a business world are where people have made me feel like something is my problem because I've just shown up a vice president for being rubbish at their job. And my thinking has shown six million pounds of incremental revenue a year. And their thinking as the leader of that company has shown one million pounds of incremental revenue. So it must be my mental health issue and I must be wrong that I'm battling to have my statement heard, right? And so being made to feel illegitimate or inadequate because I've got foresight or diversity of thinking and stuff like that, I think that's one of the biggest challenges you suffer. But ultimately, when you're neurodivergent, you're more creative thinking, you're more tenacious, you've got higher energy, you're adaptable, fast to learn, you lead well. And the reason you lead well is because you're coming from a place of self-care, right? You're constantly trying to understand how to care for yourself. So you're more likely to be empathetic and to love other people and to be more trustworthy or, or you're feeling uh, or having this feeling of giving trust or gifting trust to people. I've been absolutely screwed over so many times I can't count. And it's because I always wear my heart on my sleeve. I always show up as who I am. And sometimes people take advantage of that. You know, I invest my heart and my soul into even selling more shirts for Charles Tirrett, for example. You know, I invest my heart and my soul in my, into these things, even though it's not my brand or whatever. The way I've always worked is just like, right, these people are paying me money. So they're sustaining my lifestyle. You know, they're, they're feeding me, they're clothing me, they're giving me a lifestyle. And I will do anything for them because I won't screw anyone over or do anything bad. Right? Don't get me wrong about ethics. But I'll do anything for them in the context of just delivering this role as best as I can to the best of my ability, because I love the fact that they invested in me and they cared enough to invest in me and no one ever really invested in, me. you know. And so for me, and, and, and companies don't fully understand that. So they take advantage of it or they think it's weird. And, you know, you know, this is why I work for myself, because I, you know, I find it difficult when you don't get the same love back from people as you dish out. And so I like to work for myself because then I can call time on the contract or the period of time working together or whatever, if I don't feel the energy is right, or if I feel like it's a disingenuous service, I don't just want to provide a service. I want to evolve whoever it is I'm working with, whether it's a brand, whether it's a human being as an individual, I want to evolve them. And that means accepting all of me and everything I've got to give, even if you don't like everything you hear, 
and moving forward. And I've been screwed over by companies like Hackett where they wanted to kick me out of bed because I, you know, I was just pushing boundaries. But ultimately, I felt like, like working with certain companies like this, that when you're in a toxic environment, it should be brought to the forefront. The biggest problem we have in workplace well-being at the moment is there are tools out there that will tell us where in the business, the giant global company, where are we going wrong? Where should we invest money? And where can we definitely save money by doing X, Y, and Z? But the problem with having these tools available is that it takes one brave CEO to shine a flashlight on their business and say, here's where our problem areas are. If you invest in something, whether it's technology or whatever, and you say, oh, we're dealing with well-being, we're dealing with well-being, you never really have to deal with it. If you look really as a business person at business and look at all the aspects of where that business fails that creates negative well-being or mental health, you can solve those problems in an instant on a finite budget. You'll get a return on investment financially and you will understand where you're spending that money and to change what. And organically, you will change everyone's lives because you've improved processes and made the company more sustainable. But no one wants to buy that technology because no CEO wants to know how productive or unproductive their company is. And they certainly don't want that related to how happy or sad people are in the office. It's like cancer. The tools are there to cure cancer, but it's not profitable enough. You know what I mean? It's not profitable enough. It's better to keep making money off the back of cancer medication than it is to really get to the fundamentals of how you cure that stuff. I've got a friend currently who's heavily invested. He's developed the first off-the-shelf cure for pancreatic cancer. And he's done it in a way which is profitable as a business, but can genuinely help people to cure cancer off the shelf to the point where if you move that along 10, 20 years, you could be taking some pills in boots off the shelf, like you take vitamin tablets and you're good to go, right? This is the way that 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 person is thinking. There's people out there trying to do this stuff. Um, but I think that's that's the that's the challenge that we've got at the moment is no one really wants to know the truth about what they're doing to people and about the fact that they could solve it, but they're not. Speaking of the truth. Yes. Just a lovely segue there. Oh. Um, we always ask our guests, and this is kind of almost a little bit regardless of what they've been through or what's going on with them. But, you know, we've had guests on that have got cerebral palsy, multiple sclerosis, various different neurodivergencies. And the conversation we always say is, what are your frequently asked questions? What are the misconceptions that come with having in your case, bipolar disorder or, you know, the ADHD or other other aspects of what it, what do people make assumptions about as soon as they find out that about you? And do you get stupid questions asked? <clears throat> I think, um, I think people are still wary. People will hire me as a consultant, but they wouldn't hire me as a director. And I think that that's that means that it it's still challenging for people to express who they are because there is a, still a certain amount of prejudice 
whether it be mental health, race, etc., there is prejudice, organic prejudice within businesses and things like this. Um, I think one of the most common questions I get asked after um, after a keynote speech, for example, is how do you how do I help someone um, who is very depressed or potentially suicidal that I know that I want to help and it's a tricky one in a sense but there was a great story about a girl whose life was saved by a friend and it relates to tea actually so it's prevalent mm-hmm. um but essentially her friend wasn't communicating with her she knew that she was depressed and she was texting her and calling her and texting her and calling her and she wasn't looking to necessarily it wasn't that she was looking to try and save her life or try and be that psychologist she needed or whatever she literally went did everything she could to seek her out she spent a day seeking her out and she found her at her apartment and she got into the apartment and she sat down and they had a cup of tea and they didn't talk about any of the things that were keeping her friend in a state of suicidal ideation, which was the point she was in. And she wasn't, you know, the friend wasn't sure where she was. She didn't know that she was suicidal, but she just knew for whatever reason she had to find her. And when she got to her, because she didn't pressure her to talk about any of that stuff, she just loved her, made her a cup of tea, made her feel okay, and let her know that she wasn't alone. Her friend was able to then develop and move forward and now has a more sustainably happy lifestyle. And equally, her her friend might not have been as tenacious. She might never have found her. She might have ended up on the kitchen floor and that'd be the end, right? But now she has the ability to go and help people to change. And I think that's what we need to understand as individuals. We It's... We don't need to just try and cure everyone or anything like that. There are telltale signs that you will see as a person who's close to someone that they are struggling. And I think it's important to ask how you how you doing, um, how are you feeling, and give people the opportunity to know that they're heard. But I think it's also important for us to be really blunt as individuals and say, do you know what? I'm a little bit worried about you. I really love you. And I'm here to talk to you. But if you don't want to talk about anything that means anything, and you just want to shoot the shit, I'm here for that as well. I'm here for that person that connects us, that friendship that connects us. That's it. And they get to choose the avenue, right? The biggest challenge, I think, is the unspoken majority would rather have the tools to solve their own problem than they would be forced into help or be given help. This is why tech in well-being is an interesting theory but a lot of the time it doesn't really work because people don't want to tick a box or play a game that tells their employer whether they're happy or sad thus whether they're productive by more by 35 percent more or not i don't want that i want someone to teach me how to be more sustainably happy day to day that's all i care about when i When I decided that I didn't care about money and I didn't care about what people thought of me, I'm going to talk about everything I want to talk about and I don't care. 
Right? When I decided that, it was really about just kind of shedding what the perception, uh, the perceptions that are put on us, right? And saying, okay, I want to seek to find solutions to these problems. And the only thing I want is to wake up every day and be happy. Then I spent years going through this process where I thought that happiness was a destination that I could get to. And I buggered all that up. And then I realized happiness is a choice, not a destination. Because if we're too focused on this million pounds making us happy or this pair of shoes making us happy or this bag making us happy or whatever it might be, or this man making us happy, we're never really going to truly understand who we are as individuals. Whereas if we understand that actually it's about sitting in this moment where I may be full, full of emotion because my girlfriend left me or I feel suicidal or I had a bad childhood, sitting in that moment and going, do you know what? You've, you've actually got a bit of money in the bank. You, you ain't dead. There's guys out there. One of my closest friends has no arms and no legs. You know, how is he mentally getting through the day? Like, so be grateful for the fact you've got all your limbs, that you can choose to go for a run and lose some weight if you want to. Some other people can't choose to do that, you know, and it's finding gratitude in and being more present enough to find gratitude in what you do have rather than being trapped in the past on all these things that you can't change anymore now or trapped in the future thinking this means happy because when you get to that stage, it is not going to serve you. I always thought when I got to my bank, put my card in and saw a million pounds on the screen, that I'd be happy. And I wasted so many years worrying about how to get to that, that I wasn't really, I was living disingenuously. You know, and I wasn't filling my own cup. You know, So I think as individuals, we can move beyond what that kind of state, state that people put on us. I want to just dive in because I know Vicky's going to do the final sip in a minute. And I, it's something because my cousin April has got bipolar disorder and it's yeah. something she's, she's part of the, um, uh, Bi is it the Bipolar Foundation? Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She's, she's one of the, uh, uh, what do you call it? The people that like stand up the front and wave the flag for it. Um, <laughs> she gets, she gets out there and does loads of, um, you know work ambassadors for, let's ambassador say. that's yeah. the word yeah. um and i've been struggling for years to understand what she lives with every day and she got me to watch um something which was a series on television and there was a, a one episode and it's it was a series called modern love mm -hmm. and the episode was called take me as i am <laughs> and it was episode three if you want to watch it and it's got anne hathaway in and yeah. if anyone knows anyone with bipolar disorder and is wondering what it's like that is the most beautiful and honest and raw depiction I think I've ever come across and I think it probably tags along quite nicely with this episode to see the sort of you know when you talk about those manic highs and the extreme lows you know just to see how that sort of waves through your life when you see it on screen actually makes it all very understandable and I you know I think you're incredible for taking all your experiences and putting them out there for people to learn from and just to not feel on their own. So thank you. Oh, for I appreciate that. Yeah. I think there's another series just off the back of that then that I think is valuable for people. Um, I don't know whether it was, I originally saw it on Netflix or something, but it's called Atypical and it's about a guy who's um, 
on the autism spectrum, for example, um, and his life, right? Through to, it's it's a drama series, but it's really unique and interesting in the way that he approaches the world and explains how he approaches the world. And what the producers have done is really clue in on some of those things that every individual could think about when they're approaching someone who's neurodiverse in any context. Like if they don't want to be touched, hugged, if they've got sensitivity to sound, whatever it might be, why are they getting into those states and what is it they're thinking in those moments that help us as individuals to understand? So off the back of that, I would also say definitely check out Atypical as well. Thank you. We'll put all the links to those on the bio. But Thomas, what we do with every guest is offer them a final sip. Now, this is a chance to give your final words, thoughts, uh, hopefully related to the topic we've been talking about. But if you want to go completely <laughs> off cuff and talk about current affairs or something, then please do. But these are your final words to... yeah, about tea. Yeah, any more facts or, or anything like that? <laughs> but this is your chance to leave our listeners um, with something memorable, whether that's advice or anything you would like to share. Well, bugger. That's a really, <laughs> that's a really challenging thing to end on, isn't it? Um, that should be in the, in the start of questions. I think, um, you know, listen, the, there's what I firmly believe about mental ill health at any level of any spectrum, about you as a human being. What I believe is that I'm a bloke from a council estate in Milton Keynes who had a bit of a crap childhood and has been through some extremes and all sorts of stuff, right? Ukraine, house burning down, all all sorts of things. There's a myriad of stuff that makes up who I am as an individual. But ultimately, how you can live more sustainably, happily, is by changing four simple things, four simple pillars in your life. And that will help you run your day-to-day efficiently. And those four pillars effectively are taking a step back from alcohol, which some of you will turn off the podcast immediately, right? But hear me out. Alcohol is one of the biggest factors in life that we drink when we're happy, when we're sad, et cetera. I'm kind of three or four years alcohol-free, nearly four years alcohol-free now. And it was a revelation for me on a mental, emotional level to take a step back from alcohol just to try it. And I found that my energy levels and the way I live my life is far more effective and efficient now without alcohol in my system. Um, And I think if you couple that with learning how to exercise regularly, and it doesn't have to be for anyone else, you don't have to go and win a Spartan race or an ultra-endurance decathlon in the desert where someone's pelting you with rocks or whatever it is that people like to get up to nowadays to shout their heart. You just have to get off the couch and you have a walk, you know, or, or 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 go and get physical in some way you know so the alcohol learning about fitness learning about nutrition like you don't have to be you know delia smith or nigella lawson you don't have to be the next big gordon ramsay person you just have to learn about what plants you put in your body and what result does that have on your brain Because if you don't go and look at those things, you won't know that, let's say, a glass of beetroot juice an hour before a run will give you 33% more energy output, which sounds like a geeky, sciencey fact. But wouldn't it be good to have 33% more energy when you're going for a park run? Bloody hell. I hate (laughs) running. It'd be great. Is that true? That that is 100% true. Uh 
So don't take it just before. I did that before a Spartan race and I was physically sick um, <laughs> and spent a five, five hours running through the mountains in extreme pain. Um, but I would say, yeah, an, an hour or so before the beetroot juice thing is, is a thing. Look it up on Google. So, that you know, those three things, alcohol, taking a step back from alcohol, even if it's just for a short period of time, working, working out regularly, doing something physical regularly, even if it's three times a week, learning about nutrition, and the final thing is just giving yourself like one minute every day just to be mindful. Like people think that mindful is a dirty word, right? So all these big burly builders on building sites who are depressed. I say, forget about the concept of being mindful and think about just being present. Sit there on the sofa if it is, when no one's in the house, close your eyes and think about how good it feels to be alive and what you're grateful for. And if you do that for one simple minute every day, along with these other things, you can completely change your life. This is my process. And if if I can change my life, then anybody can. Because I'm going through such extremities of different challenges consistently and triggers and traumas that are going on consistently that if I can do it, then any person around can. And that's fundamentally what I'm all about. So you can change your state of play today. You just have to decide whether it's one day day one as final sips go thomas that's pretty awesome profound uh, on imagine if i wrote something down and thought i know that. no i would have lost it it would have lost its poignancy <laughs> that was awesome thank you so much and thank, thank you, you so much for sh- just being so open and sharing your story i really um, appreciate it really appreciate appreciate the time i think it's important to to kind of just be authentic people and that's what i love about you guys is you're just authentic people and for the moment we kind of connected you know, I just felt that in, in your shared experience as well when we had that first stage meeting together. Um, and I think that's what we need more of, right? We just need more people talking about being human beings. Yeah. And then we're going to yeah. just understand that we're all on a, a level of spectrum. And that if we just look out for each other a bit more and stop moaning about everything. And share more tea, right? Definitely. Exactly. More tea giving. More tea. More, More tea, tea giving. Especially Just Earl like Grey. Earl Grey or the Chinese guy, whichever one it was. <laughs> Not PG someone tea. gave someone some tea and that's important. That's the, that's the takeaway. <laughs> well, thank you again, Thomas. And if you listeners have liked what you have heard, please go to our supporters page where you can click onto our bias a coffee or an Earl Grey tea. Or something else, whatever you fancy. Jaffa cakes, I fancy Jaffa, Jaffa cakes. cakes. You can also buy us Jaffa cakes. That would work. That would be yeah. good. Is it yeah. is it dunkable though? No. no. Chocolate covered hobnobs. I'm not. A, you, you know, it's I'm not a dunker anyway. But you know, oh. I'm a proper be a dunker. dunker. Chocolate covered hobnobs. It's the Ooh. it's the military grade biscuit of the biscuit. <laughs> there's no Ooh. messing about. And there's chocolate. Yeah, and we are going to put it to that. the test. It feels it. kind of healthy because you're eating oats. Yeah. Right. yeah, that's the way I kind of like yeah, set yeah. aside. Yeah. Chocolate is merely the cement for the goodness. That should have been the takeaway. That Fobinal. should have been the takeaway. Got should it. have got this sponsored. Oh. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll put that. We'll put that at the bottom of your. Should have been uh, your sponsored by yeah. <laughs> Completely irrelevant to mental health. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you that's everyone for joining us, and it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from her. Take care, everyone. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye.